So you're not surrounded by Antifa. <laughs> no, I'm I'm surrounded by um, affluent liberals. You're listening to United States of the Land in support of the People's House Mutual Aid Network. And welcome to another episode of United, United States, States of the, the Left. Left. Yeah, it's been a bit. It's been a bit. <laughs> it's been a minute. And for those uh, tuning in for the first time, welcome. Um, your hosts are one Jeff McElvain. And Robert Davis. Yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, we just introduced each other right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, it's been um, it's been a while uh, since we sat down and uh, recorded anything. Uh, it's been a really busy summer for both of us. That's right. And uh, before we we dive into our interview with our, our good friend Alex, uh, we just wanted to take a minute to to celebrate together our you know our our own wins. Um, for the the summer uh, yeah and why we you know took kind of a long break from podcasting we did we did uh it's been busy uh i got married uh to a wonderful woman which is fantastic robert dj'd uh (laughs) which was uh spectacular um it was a it was a great effort on on everyone's part it was a really community effort um and we we had a great time. It was magical. Yeah, so you was... threw probably the dopest wedding reception in the history of wedding receptions. <laughs> we'll we'll leave that up to your imagination, but yeah. it, it lived up to that. I hope it did. Um, and Rob, uh, the weekend before, right? The weekend before. Yeah, the weekend before, because you were afraid Climbed. I was going to die and not make your <laughs> wedding. Not make our wedding, and then also not DJ for our wedding. Would have been really tough uh, logistically. Uh, Rob climbed Half Dome, uh, which is in a day. In a day, uh, which is important for rock climbers to uh, say. And um, yeah, and that's that's the legit. I don't I don't know how to say this. The legitimate rock climb up the the famous <laughs> face of Half Dome, not the backside like a lot of people will do. Sure. Um, and yeah, I there was a picture of Rob that he he sent um to to Ellen and I and just the look of fear on his face <laughs> yeah. he was he was gripped um but super scared yeah pulled it off so congrats man that's i yeah. know that's a lifetime achievement right yeah, there yeah definitely that was the one climb i always was inspired most by yeah and speaking of lifetime achievements rob also graduated from uh university yeah which is fantastic. That was another reason why we took some time off to, to give him time to to work through that. Uh, I think he's a summa cum laude, right? Allegedly is what they say. Allegedly. <laughs> Still waiting to see the diploma. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see it soon enough. Uh, congrats, man. And then, Thank you. Um, and congrats to you, man. I mean, it's a, Ellen's a wonderful woman. You're a lucky man. And it was a, it was a beautiful experience to witness the merging of these two people I love and care about. Thanks. Fantastic. Yeah, a- absolutely. And then Ellen and I, in um, very um, our relationships fashion, then uh, did our honeymoon of bicycling across Alaska, uh, which was uh, an experience and really cemented the relationship. If uh, <laughs> we hadn't managed to, to get through that uh, smiling and with flying colors, it would have been 
it boded not so well for us. Which I feel like is like half dome in a day of bikepacking. It felt like it. Yeah. Yeah. They were I my face probably looked similar to your <laughs> face at some points of that trip too, for sure. Is that a bear? It, it could be a bear. It could be a bear. Yeah, we actually had to to stop joking about that because we started to get like really <laughs> Uh, we, our systems were down and our bear spray was right at hand. So when someone joked about a bear that, yeah, <laughs> we were ready for it. Yeah. There was all sorts of dangers beyond just bears too, from the stories you told. Yeah. It, it's uh, it was the wild west. Let's just put it that way. So, um, we're going to jump into the, our interview with, um, our good friend, Alex and Rob, uh, has known Alex for a very long time. So Rob, if you want to give our guest an intro, sure, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so um, Alex is a good friend of mine. Um, we both met in rehab. Um, and through that like experience forged a pretty deep um, relationship, you know, bond. Um, and we eventually you know, moved out of that rehab and got an apartment together and kind of was experiencing this, this new lease on life together. And, and he, uh, got a job, um, uh, for a local nonprofit that does kind of like, um, coordinate coordinated reentry services, which you'll hear a lot about mm. in, in the interview, but basically it's homeless services and you know alex is just super smart and rose rapidly through the ranks of like the homeless services industry and it is an industry which we will talk about um some of his job positions include being an associate director a regional coordinator a supervisor of system components and a manager of problem solving none of those titles i really know what they mean they're all impressive, but yeah. it, it's actually more <laughs> impressive the the level that you know the the organizations he was working at. Uh, when I met uh, Alex and Rob, um, they were still roommates that have since moved uh, moved on uh, to bigger and better things. Um, but Alex was obviously the rising star of the two. That's true, one hundred percent. And he's still he's still on that trajectory. He's he's uh, overseeing huge budgets and yeah. is. Uh, you know, usually the person making the decisions in the room. Yeah. And, he's, and it's uh, really impressive what, yeah. he's, what he's done. I think he's like spearheading a pilot program out of Portland, the county up there, and like their new program for homeless services. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, he is an expert. Yeah. Which is why we felt really uh, blessed to be able to talk to him and pick his brain about this, like, super pressing problem mm -hmm. i mean not only in california but really across the nation yeah the eviction moratorium is right. ending and right there's all sorts of um uh activity on that front and uh this is just always going to be relevant so long as we have this housing crisis in the united states sure and um and what's cool about his experience is he has the like you know the on the boots boots on the ground perspective um, he has the high level administrative perspective, but then he also has the lived experience as you will, you know, hear in the interview, he himself was homeless. Yep. So yep. Without, yeah. Without further ado. All right. 
I guess to make things awkward and formal, thank you, Alex, for taking the time to uh, join us to discuss this issue and your breadth of experience. We appreciate it. Um, so I guess uh, a logical starting point um, is to kind of share your journey, uh, both, I guess, personally and then also um, professionally, because I think it's really valuable and also interesting because you were doing outreach services. So, you know, pounding the pavement, dealing directly with these individuals, um, you know, going into encampments, the whole nine, and then you advanced and you got promotions and that brought on different jobs and different responsibilities and also different perspectives and to where you became, I don't know, is it fair to say like, mid to high level management when it, uh, yeah yeah so yeah could you just kind of let us know about your personal and professional experience in this field my experience with with you know homelessness is you know like i mean i was a knucklehead i think you know like i mean like i mean robert knows this you know he knows most of my story like yeah. you know alleys people's garages people's couches you know like dude who will like you know pay to do whatever you know to give me a spot to crash you know like occasional beach crash you know like you know you know the kind of the whole lifestyle where you don't know where you're going to be that night and uh that's really like not even that important because there's other things that are really more important to take care of that day um yeah. that lifestyle and how uh, old were you during that most of my 20s um I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a real idiot, like you can, you can, you know, you can milk your resources for a couple of years before you, you burn through them. And, you know, you know, you, you play, you play well for a couple months and you can get your resources back and then it takes sure. you a good year to burn through them again. And then you can play well for a couple months and then you can burn through them again and, you know, rinse and repeat. And I'd say, you know, like, I don't know, from like, 2000 to 2009 it was basically the rinse and re repeat routine um but i mean like from my perspective i think that influenced a lot of the programming i did later on that and like the work i did in early recovery as i'm drinking my beer on this uh, podcast but um was like that like if i was like empowered and pointed in the right direction like i didn't always need like a lot of external resources as much as i needed external support um and like with that support like i was able to like you know kind of pull it together and like i think if there was people that like had pursued that level of assistance earlier on i might not have like rinsed and repeated for as many years i mean who knows never really know but like like I, 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 when I, when I went into homeless services later and like, I started working my way up, like I really started like looking at like, like, it's not always like some people just need, like, I really call it the handout, right? Like I hate calling it a handout, but like some people like are just incapable, like of like their level is different. Like their level of success or their bar is different than like, it's like not a one shoe fits all. Right. Like some people right. like they like, if they can pull off the $35 a month for their rent and like not burn down the place, they're a freaking success. And like, we right. need to celebrate them. And then there's some people that like, 
they just kind of like need to boot up the ass and somebody to like be there to like cheerlead them and like that's it and they'll be fine like they'll be able to get out of the hole they just need like moral support it's so, like there's like like all these levels kind of like in between mm-hmm. and like I think when I got into the system early, it wasn't really that perspective. It was like more like there was like one tier or two tiers, right? And like everybody like case managers are like super codependent and they want to be Santa Claus and they want to like be helpful to their participants. So they want to give them the best. And I truly believe that if you're just giving somebody the best and they don't need the best that like you're kind of like robbing them of like their own ability to grow. Um, and like self-sustain and like have their own like experience. So like, I feel like all my experiences through like both recovery and like bumping my head and being in the system, like kind of like solidified that like there's many different approaches, just like everybody, like as a human is unique. Right. Um, and you can't just like peg people into a couple things. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm going to use a little bit of background knowledge here, but I, I think it's fascinating because, you know, when we're talking about, um, the homeless population, like, I I mean, in general, all three of us have experienced some level of homelessness. I don't want to, I don't want to put myself in the same shoes as you guys, but like I traveled for a few years and really at a certain point, I didn't know where my mail was going to, which I'm sure you guys probably like for years that that wasn't a thing, but you know, I had mail going to three or four different addresses and I wasn't, I don't think I even had an address for a while. It was, you know, I was living in South Korea or I was uh, in Sacramento or I was in New Orleans or something like that. But like I had a college education, Alex, you had a college education, right? As well, before you kind of hit the, (laughs) but Rob, you hadn't, you dropped out of high school, right? Yeah, that's correct. So like all, you know, when we're talking about like various levels of service and things like that too, we're also talking about very different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and how that can impact not just your recovery, but also what you do afterwards too, right? Like getting that education and and things like that, or having that education can make a huge difference too. Well, I mean, we're white. I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother game changer, right? Like, I mean, like, like I can, like, you can put me with my like knowledge, experience and education and then like Latinx and like, you know, African-American and black, whatever, you know, like they, they want to, you know, like you put those people together, all like almost all the same things. And like, it will be easier for me yeah. from a societal standpoint than it would yeah. be for the other two populations. Right. So like, there's even mm. like that comes into play a lot, like, you know, and that needs to be taken into account. Yeah, 100%. I think it's really interesting that you kind of laid out this, like that when thinking about the people um, who are unhoused, it's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And really having, I guess, a person-centered approach and taking into account the socioeconomic factors, the historical trauma factors, their mental health capabilities, their coping capabilities, their social support network or lack thereof, uh, resources, education, family history, genetics, their you know medical health, like all those factors. Social capital. I mean, all the different for like some people know how to code. Like some people know when they walk into a room, you talk this way. 
you walk into this room, you talk this way, you walk into this room, you dress this way. Some people don't have that skill. Right. But like basic communication skills. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people just don't, I don't know even know if that's basic. That. That's advanced. Right. Oh, yeah. That, that well, like, I can't code. I'm just always my jerk self in every situation. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's people like me that like I'm perpetually coding. Like I have right. to like try to prevent myself from coding because like, I just like try to like chameleonize. Right. Like, so like you can hit both ends of the spectrum. That's interesting. When you said that, my first thought was like, oh, he's talking about programming language. I've never, I've never heard that term used in terms of like reading a room and finding out like kind of socially who, what, what the net landscape is of this next social interaction and how to navigate it gracefully, or at least navigate in a way where you can get your needs met. Mm-hmm. So, so um, just kind of circling back, just briefly, like describe to us what your positions were throughout your career working in, in this, uh, industry? I mean, I think when I, when I started in outreach, um, it, I was new to having like a, a, like a real job. And so I would say my position initially was like, I want to like look good and do good. Right. And like my job was to get people indoors. And so like, I used that like insecure desire to like be like successful or like get like praise or whatever to just like get uh-huh. as many people inside as possible. Like, like regardless, like go to any lengths, like I'm going to get people inside. And that like, was going directly to people, unhoused individuals where they were living, yeah, doing some sort of assessment and then plugging them into social services. Yes. And you know what the crazy thing is, is because I was so hell bent on just getting people inside and like showing that I could do it, that like, I wasn't thinking about like, Hey, this guy doesn't like even know his social security number. He doesn't know his mother's maiden name. He doesn't know his date of birth. I don't even know if his name is real. Like, but let's just give him an apartment and see what happens because I need to, like, I want to, like, I want to get, I want to get leases. I want to get people indoors. And like, the crazy thing is, is the people that like, I would have expected to just like completely fail miserably, like still call me <laughs> like huh. seven, seven years later, they're still inside. They're doing fine. They're absolutely batshit crazy. And they're just, they've thrived completely. And then the people that like you thought were like, Oh, this is easy. This guy is going to be successful. No problem. Give them there's keys. I can just like leave them be. And they just like burn the place down and cause mm-hmm. the rockets. And you like, you never really know. Right it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's like that the guy that I'm talking about, like this guy lived at, um, the park near Harbor UCLA. No, not use, uh, Kaiser in Harbor city. And he like had a barbecue. Like, I don't know if he was barbecuing freaking rats or like, like skunks or whatever, but this dude lived like in the jungle back there. Like he had a little tent, <laughs> a little bonfire, like a little crooked bicycle, like, he like had an American flag thing and he was like, he was a hardcore staunch Republican that like was probably schizophrenic and like, he was totally fine. Got him an apartment. No issues. Never once. Yeah. I, that's, that's a real, <laughs> there's so much to explore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like what would grilled skunk yeah. actually smell like? <laughs> Does it taste good? I know. Will we ever know? Well, I mean, and it, it just speaks to, I think, I think one of the most, a theme that I keep running into 
in exploring this topic, both like from a activist perspective and then also just because I do, you know, work with homeless people in my profession. Um, just how, how much, how much the high degree to which there's counterintuitive um, aspects to this problem. And it really defies conventional understanding. And that's why I think it's so important to have people like you, Alex, to sh- kind of pull the curtain back and provide, you know, uh, maybe just a perspective that most people may not get in the mainstream media. Cause there's definitely like pretty fixed narratives about this topic that kind of permeate and how people formulate their the understanding of it. And then from there, Alex, you kind of got promoted and you were into a more like high level management kind of bureaucratic. Can you talk about what you were doing, doing there? Yeah. When I went up to the funding level, I mean, then I really got to write programming. Um, and what does that so, mean right programming? So, so yeah, so as a funder, like the money comes down from, I don't know, either the county or from the state or from the federal government or like multiple areas that'll come down. And depending on the funding, there's certain restrictions and this, that, and the other thing. And they're like, you know, you can kind of like plug that funding into different buckets. Like I want to do a rehousing program or I want to do a shelter program or I want to do a street outreach program. And so like you have to write the programming and then you give it to the nonprofit organizations and they actually go out and do the work. Mm -hmm. And so writing the programming was essentially the recipe, I guess it would be the recipe book that you give to the nonprofits and they bake that recipe out and hopefully get the desired results. And Mm -hmm. so that in a sense is, you know, you're looking at like trauma-informed approaches and motivational, all the, all the, I can say all the buzzwords, right? But you're trying to utilize all of those buzz, buzzwords in a way where you're creating a program where it's like you're helping empower people to be successful and get off the street um, by teaching case managers and program managers an effective tool to, you know, do the work. I mean, so for the, for the people who don't know what you mentioned, trauma informed and motivational interviewing, those are just approaches used by outreach workers to kind of successfully, or at least attempt to be successful in like cultivating sensitive and effective approaches in dealing with like their clients, the unhoused people. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like if, if you're working in South, if you're working in South LA, you know, you would probably, it'd be important to know about redlining. Um, It would be important to know about, you know, like what percentage of, you know, the African-American community has had connections with justice and like, what has it been for? Like, oh, it's been for like possession of weed or like petty theft for like items that people need to survive. And like, now they're like in these situations and it's like knowing all that information when you work with somebody is like, helps you not make like assumptions or like put people in boxes or corners, you know, and like actually be more harmful than helpful to them, you know, doing that kind of thing. How do you, how do you navigate that, Alex? Because that's actually our, our last interview was with uh, uh, one of my neighbors, uh, Andre, who is, you know, his family had lived in Santa Monica. They owned a business in Santa Monica and then um, slowly but surely, um, 
you know, driven out. I, I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, between laws and uh, aggressive policing and housing policies, et cetera, they're now living in South LA, South Central LA. Um, and how that, you know, uh, and as a black male, um, you know, as a homosexual black male, especially in the, in this, in these, uh, circumstances how easily he could have fallen into homelessness mm -hmm. in that process and how like say redlining and overly aggressive policing how that can impact his ability to find housing you know he's not he's housed he's got you know a a, a, a great family and and they're all very supportive uh together but for uh, another person in a similar circumstance how would that have impacted his ability to find housing and probably greatly. I mean, like, I mean, in the trainings I was doing, like, I, I always emphasize that the most important thing that anybody you're working with is a so strong social support network. Mm -hmm. Like, like we did an activity early on and it was like, you get everybody together and you're like, what's one thing that could happen in your life that could cause homelessness? Everybody in the room has something. There was not one person in the room that could not come up with at least one thing right off the top of their head of something, you know, medical thing, right? Like, what if I get hit by a car? What if I get cancer? What, like, there's like, right, like a million things that could happen. Like, I lose my job. I only have one month's worth of, you know, money in the in the bank, you know, like then I'm out right now. We're like, as, as messed up as things are, we're kind of blessed with the moratoriums and things, you know, because like, I'm sure a lot more people would have fallen into homelessness without the rental more, you know, the eviction moratoriums. But like, and 90% of the time, the solution that everybody gives of why they did not or would not fall into homelessness is always family, friends, social support networks, churches, community members, like mutual aid. Of the time, yeah. It's always those people that are around them in their lives that would prevent them from falling into homelessness. Yeah. And it's kind of an, it's a, it's a great activity because it kind of like, levels know. the playing field it le it does it levels yeah. the playing field it puts everybody on the same thing like anybody in this room could be in that situation and i'm just really lucky because i have these people to support me in my life and a lot of the people that we run into homelessness like their social support network ends up being the people that they're with on the streets they don't they don't have that external source of support network anymore you know i think that's really interesting alex because I, I feel like that's really important commentary that's missing from the bootstrap narrative. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I got no arms and you want me to pull up my pants all by myself? Like, come on. <laughs> well, even, uh, you know, I'm thinking about people that I know and, you know, even coworkers who, who have quite a lot more money in the bank where like those conversations don't even, that wouldn't phase them because there are so many layers away from the potential of homelessness. But oftentimes, that is generational wealth that allows them to have that security. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different level of um, the social support versus like, I mean, a, like if the free market crashed, the stock market crashed tomorrow and, you know, 80% of my assets are in, you know, IRAs and for this and that and the other thing and all Dutch that, coin. right. Then like, who am I going to call? I'm going to call yeah. grandma if she has a phone, right? Like I'm going to call mm -hmm. somebody else in my, in my, in my social network. That's going to be able to save me. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really interesting because I, I wanted to talk to you about kind of like the strengths and weaknesses of the kind of Los Angeles public safety net for housing services. 
um, as an insider, I think you have a unique perspective. I think you've been in the belly of the beast, so to speak. Um, and what you just described about triaging and how needing like more kind of ugly answers, like they're not, they're not like politically sexy answers, but it it's kind of, what is the alternative when housing is so expensive? I know that like, you know, things like measure HHH, which allocated, you know, billions of dollars to deal with the uh, help, help to help homeless people. And part of that is the building of units. And I know that that's been under a lot of scrutiny and it seems like, it seems like that is a really challenging approach to, I mean, ultimately it's the right answer. Like the way you bring down the cost of living is to have surplus. Mm -hmm. Right. But it seems like that's just such a difficult undertaking when not only do you have super restrictive uh, laws for building and all the zoning issues and, and red tape with that, but then just the cost of producing these units are exorbitant, not because necessarily, although there may be like, you know, not exactly the most effective use of these fundings, uh, but just the general cost of building property in Los Angeles. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. I mean, I'm a big fan of conversion, like motel conversions. Like there are so many conversions that can be done more often than not. It's a zoning issue. And mm -hmm. like a lot of the times I don't even know why it's a zoning issue. Like it's a zoning issue because somebody somewhere at some point made some sort of rule that like you couldn't have this many rooms on this block in this kind of neighborhood or something like that. Like, right. And then like you get your, you, you know, your fire department has their rules and your building inspectors have their rules and like everybody has their rules. And once you start stacking all the rules together, at some point you can't even see through, <laughs> you can't see through the thing anymore. Right. Because it's like, there's just so many layers that have been added that it's almost impossible. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you got to grease the wheels. I mean, how many times I'm not living in LA, so I can say this stuff, but I mean, how many times in the news is it, you know, like, some councilman or somebody like is getting, <laughs> you know, getting money they shouldn't have been getting. Right. You know, right. Taking, taking the, you know, like what is the, the pie, like the pie with the little dollar stuff behind it, you know, like, all that <laughs> stuff. and like, I've seen like, since I've been here, like, you know, like some like other communities, like don't have a lot of these rules and like the bureaucracy, Portland made upon it. The bureaucracy upon the bureaucracy. Portland uh, ended up with a infill law, right? Like you now, they they refuse to expand the city limits of Portland, and instead they're requiring you to build up. You not not you, Alex, but you know uh, developers, and and I think they've eliminated single family home zoning in the city of Portland. Um, done, so you're getting a lot of not, four not, five story <laughs> development there. Follow it because it's a it's part of the Metro Tri County area. Um, mm -hmm. I mean they have their own issues, but like what, it seems like a lot of the zoning stuff is um, definitely been less restrictive from what I've mm -hmm. observed at this point. So you feel like, you feel like um, conversion is just a better, more cost-effective uh, approach instead of building. 
new. Well, no, I think that you no, I think at this point we need to like shoot our like a like a scatter gun, right? Like I right. mean there's there's like 50 different things that need to happen all at once and like some of its conversion, some of its building up, some of its granny flats, some of its allowing people to park RVs in front of their houses and not get sighted if like you have a driveway and you want to allow somebody to park their RV in your driveway and rent it out. Like, like why is that not legal? Right. Like, why are only 5% of boats in marinas allowed to have liveaboard status when there are slips for 15,000 boats just in Marina del Rey? That's like, mm. like they're like, because oh, there's a rich guy that doesn't want somebody living in his boat next to his yacht. Right. But like there's potential for housing there. Right. Like there's all these RVs, but nobody wants to like, give RV lots a chance and give them permanent addresses and let people park their RV somewhere where now they have a mailing address. They want to live in their RV. Fine. Why don't you just make a lot where they can park? I mean, there's a multitude of answers, but there's bureaucracy and there's pushback and there's all this stuff associated with a lot of these answers that cause all kinds of issues. Which is, I, I think the role of activism at this point too, is that, you know, I, I think that oftentimes politicians end up looking at homelessness as a third rail. You know, you throw money at services, but to actually try to to break through what you just described is really that's touching on that rich yacht owner or those oh, you know the rich yacht owner is neoliberal. So there's a fine mm -hmm. line between like, hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm liberal. I vote for the right or the left. I vote for the mm -hmm. left. I'm a liberal. I will put my tax dollars into the solution, but it needs to be over there. Mm. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. It can't be around here. It's got to be over there. But mm -hmm. if everybody's saying over there, then where, where is this over there place? Mm -hmm. How, what, what has been your experience? You, 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 you said earlier you were creating these recipes. Um, ways to <laughs> ways to basically allocate funds for services right yeah. and then you referenced kind of a scattershot approach like multi-pronged and i'm just wondering what how big of impediment is nimbyism oh it's huge it's huge i mean like i mean how uh, it's if you read the news i mean like oh we're gonna open no, a children's community. not in my oh. backyard <laughs> yeah, yeah sorry yeah, nimby is not in my backyard aka like i'll pay for it just not anywhere near me right right like i mean if if this is where the this is where people need to take into account that these are people like mm -hmm. like i grew up in this community i went to high school in this community I had a job in this community. I got married in this community. My wife died. I had a nervous breakdown. I lost everything. And now I'm homeless in this community. And now you're saying you have a resource for me, but it's a hundred miles away or it's 50 miles away, or it's out like in Lancaster. Like, no, like this is, this is where my roots are. Like people, people, you know, like a lot of people plant roots. That's where their heart's at. Right. Home is where the heart's at. Right. Like, so like, everybody needs to like be less selfish <laughs> how, how much of that too in the decision making matrix like the the person who is who, who you just described might not all might also be making a cost benefit analysis that like maybe those benefits in lancaster are going to dry up and i'll lose my support structure even if it's on the street i'll lose that support structure and i'll have to restart it 
mm-hmm. somewhere completely new where I don't have those roots and mm-hmm. how difficult that can be for someone who doesn't maybe have trust in the state or in local law enforcement to respect their own rights to, to, to move forward or move beyond um, where they're at right now. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the lack of familiarity, I'm sure would freak a lot of people out, especially if they're right on the edge. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, also you think about if you're like, you know, from a minority based community, like you, your family might be there, but they can't take you in. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to get evicted. Like you know, it says on the rental agreement, right? Like you can't have another person in the building. Like I still want to be near mom or grandma or my aunt or whatever, right? But like I can't be there. They would love to take me in, and maybe they let me sneak in, you know, a couple of days a month to shower and get a good night's sleep and eat some food. But when it comes down to it, you can't be there. So is there is there anything that you feel like the public sector is getting right? The pub, the public sector. Yeah, like, like I guess, like, we're, Lhasa, Lhasa, the county of Los Angeles, like, like government, local government, using tax revenue to address this. Yeah, I mean, like they're they're funneling a lot of money in LA out of you know um, the police essentially, and you know are going to be focusing on more you know harm reduction based models um, to assist people. Um, I believe it's upwards of a hundred million dollars, um, in the city of Los Angeles alone. Um, I think that is a a great step in the right direction, you know, like, you know, like help somebody before you throw somebody in a cage. Um, I think like, at least through like, you know, you know, Lhasa itself, like as challenging of a bureaucracy as it was to, to work there and, and manage there, like the whole theme the whole time was like, what are creative things we can do to try to get people off the street? Like it was yeah. like, it was constantly based off of like being creative, pushing the envelope, trying new things, doubling down when things work. Like it was never ending. I mean, sometimes I think it drove the providers crazy because it was just like, we were constantly trying to like, just be better at like how we can help people. It wasn't like just like stuck, fixed one thing. We're just going to do it this way. We're not going to keep trying new things. It was like, if this is a problem, we got to come up with a solution. It's like problem solving, problem solving, problem solving, especially with a system as broken as ours. Like if you're not continually trying to problem solve all the issues, like they keep getting worse. Did public pressure like activism, et cetera, have any impact on those conversations? It depends. I think so. I think with the police stuff, definitely. Right. Like, I don't think, I don't think if people hit, didn't hit the streets, like it wouldn't have ended up that way. Um, I think that's a fine line, right? Like I, I don't, you know, I don't, I try to stay out of that discourse to a certain extent because I respect it, but I mean, I also have my own personal beliefs and I find that there's a very fine line that needs to be written between like making like people very aware and slightly uncomfortable and willing to do change and then like crossing that line and then like people will shut off yeah. right like you, you cross that line too many times people's empathy to a certain extent i don't know it closes off sure so i mean it's hard right because like the only change historically that's happened in society has been through like 
I wouldn't say violence, but like an uprising, like a revolutionary type of experience. Agitation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Community, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I'm even seeing it now with our current president, like, you know, like, and, and like, I, I, I did not like this dude at all, frankly, but like to this point, like I've been actually very, he'll make a decision. People will be like, ah, and then like, he'll be like, okay, like they'll backpedal <laughs> and then they'll like try to like adjust and like, they're trying to listen to the voices. Right. Like, and so like, there's a lot to be said for that. Right. Like, you know, like it, you want leadership that's going to listen to like the agitation, but like you need to like, kind of like ride that line where it's not becoming like harmful. Yeah. Well, and, and then also it's, it's like everyone's looking at, I, I would say just from like a, a public sector standpoint, uh, you know, as yourself as a representative there, et cetera, is that you're also kind of caught because you're not the solution. You're just trying to do a better bandaid while society figures out the issues, but mm -hmm. society's just like, Hey, let's just throw money at, at the service providers. And somehow that's going to fix our housing market. Like somehow that's going, you know, like that's where I think that we're really falling apart is not the, ser I'm sure as service providers, you guys are, I mean, Alex, I know you, you're an intelligent, motivated, uh, you know, caring, caring person. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone who ends up in, in a similar position as you is similar in that regard. Um, but you're not going to fix like the zoning issues or CEQA reviews or, or whatever in, in Los Angeles. But without that additional systemic change, like your work is 10 times harder no matter how much money you get given. I mean, we look at it like we, we used to say like there's two types of prevention. You have little P prevention and big P prevention. And like little P prevention is you roll in and you, you're, you're, you're basically preventing somebody from falling into homelessness like tomorrow, right? Like how much money do I need to give the landlord? Like, do I need to get a lawyer to go into court to prevent eviction? Like, what do I need to do like right now to prevent this family from falling into the street? that's essentially homeless services, right? It's like, it's the, it's the, it's that bandaid. It's that right now it's that triage. Then you have big P prevention and big B, big P prevention. That's systemic, right? That's like, that's like decriminalization of, of substances. That is, you know, giving people access to healthcare and mental health resources. That is raising the minimum wage so that people can afford housing. That is, you know, easy access to, to, you know, the basic resources people need to survive. You know, that's, you know, you know, the judicial system. There's like so many things that are part of the big P prevention that like, if they're not happening in tandem, like yeah. this will never work. Yeah, they have to be happening in tandem. You can't just be giving band-aids out like in, in the war field. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like somebody needs to be like in the background trying to end the war, like in like doing all the political mumbo jumbo, like to fix the issue of why like people are fighting in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's really the catch 22 that I know Jeff and I talk about frequently, you know, the three of us, we've all worked for nonprofits, human services, and the on you know one one hand of the catch 22 is these services that are being provided are helping people mm -hmm. and these people are better off because these organizations exist and are providing them services and then the other hand on the other hand the other side of the catch 22 is 
the perpetuation of these services can help prevent any of the big P systematic changes from occurring because it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a, a shift in like the, like collective consciousness of, of how we think what the solution is of this problem. And so we think, well, we just need more funding, more, you know, allocation, more services, da, 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 da. And no one's going to have the broader conversation of how the homelessness is really a consequence of late stage capitalism. Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. 100%, right? Like, I mean, I don't think I know anybody in the homeless services field that would not love for like the macro, you know, you know, social justice type things to, to be changed in a sense where they don't have to do that work anymore and they can be painters or, you know, like they do it because they feel like an internal, you know, drive and need to like help people. But when it comes down to it, like we all would prefer to like go out back and, and garden and paint a picture and do like other things, you know, instead. Yeah. And, you know, just, I, I, that was something that was disappointing for me and like engaging with the whole echo park situation was I found that unfortunately, not, not that I want to like wholesale condemnation, cause that's never the case, but there was definitely some elements within, um, the, the activist movement regarding this specific issue where they were expressing pretty like, they were they were just uh, giving the workers who were trying to provide services a really hard time. Yeah, and right. I thought that was I thought that was pretty unfortunate. Yeah, because I, I don't I why well, I I understand where they're coming from. Um, at the end of the day, people go into this into this career or into this calling, not necessarily because the money's good. Uh, cause a lot of time it's not, it's because people it's on their heart to try to make a difference and they do make a difference, but then you have the, also the kind of paradox that they're also, um, a component to a larger structure that's perpetuating the problem. And I think that kind of, I think that kind of nuance is just really difficult. And a lot of people just don't want to wander into that gray and, but as I see it, that's, that's the gray that we live in concerning this issue. And, and I, I take full ownership of also being a part of our part of it as someone who works in the, you know, nonprofit, uh, human services, public sector field. I mean, I mean, Robert, I, I mean, I don't want to disagree. You can disagree. <laughs> but I think that there's always a need for the the boots on the ground nonprofit sector, because people are always going to fall on hard times. Yeah. Um, people are always going to have, you know, life situations and mental breakdowns and deaths and losses and just things that like are just too much to handle as delicate creatures that we all are. Right. And there's always going to be that need, but the reliance shouldn't be for that to be the solution to the problem that that's like, more tertiary right like the the solution is like is the big p and then that is like 
the the smaller amount that needs to be like to catch on right like there's always going to need people that need somebody to help them up and move them along and dust help dust them off there's no matter what even then like i mean no matter how high we get as like hopefully as a society like like there still needs that there will be the need for that thing yeah but it can't be the number one solution. It should be like the secondary solution, right. <laughs> the secondary response, like not the An first adjunct. Response. Yeah. The first response isn't to give a million dollars to outreach workers to get people off the streets. The first one is like, why are people falling off the streets? Let's tackle those problems. Right. And then like, then use the other stuff secondary. I think that's, uh, that's something that I, you know, I, I want to frame this a little bit, you know, just because this isn't my, my, my frame of reference, like homelessness services is not really the way I look at it, but housing and infrastructure is. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is when we're talking about nonprofits filling a gap, um, I just pulled up Habitat for Humanities, uh, California page to see, you know, when, when people think about housing and like one of the nonprofit services we get for, for people for housing, um, pulling that up and it looks like, uh, our work for the Habitat for Humanity, California state support organization, we build, renovate and repair an average of 400 homes per year in California. So there are those households. Mm -hmm. That's the little P, um, it might not be prevention, but you know, I'm sure prevention. I totally Habitat for Humanity and, mm -hmm. and, and the work I've seen them do is mm -hmm. definitely preventative, right? They're yeah, preventative. So then pulling up the, the legislative analysts uh, office for the state of California, uh, they do they ran some really interesting reports that I remember going through in, in grad school. And one of those was California's high housing costs, causes and consequences. And according to a, a, a bipartisan or nonpartisan analyst's office, they're saying, on top of the 100,000 to 140,000 housing units California is, ex is expected to build each year, the state probably would have to build as many as 100,000 additional units annually. So essentially doubling the amount of housing that as a state we're building in order to um, effectively mitigate the high housing costs, uh, seriously mitigate its problems with housing affordability. So you know, when, when we talk about band-aids, Habitat for Humanity is a band-aid, you know, 400 housing units compared to a hundred thousand. And, you know, we, we seem to be just attempting to use nonprofits as the solution mm -hmm. and in combination with the public services, but like the actual extent of the issue is, is humongous comparatively. And I'm assuming that you know, I mean, obviously homelessness and housing affordability is, is intimately connected, but, you know, even just in terms of the big P prevention in Los Angeles County for homelessness, it, we're probably talking about that's the size of the band-aids that we're talking about, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you think about like, like Project Room Key at how many rooms? 5,000 almost. I believe. And how many homeless people do we have in our, in Los Angeles County? The last count was 67,000, but we didn't count last year. So it's probably, I would assume it's probably closer to the 70 in the seventies at this point. Well, and 2020 probably saw a huge increase. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's probably in the seventies. Definitely. Yeah, and and yeah. project room key. That's just, that's temporary housing, right? Alex? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it was, it was essentially emergent respite care for, right. you know, COVID vulnerable. Right. Yeah. 
person. So, I, and I think that that's just, you know, that's more to just frame this in terms of what little P versus big P actually sounds like, you know, could California as a state build a hundred thousand public homes, you know, public housing? Pro maybe. Okay. So if we literally did, okay. You say you cut, you cut Pentagon budget in half mm -hmm. or you don't cut Pentagon's budget in half, but you use half of the Pentagon's budget for other things mm -hmm. like, like in-house things mm -hmm. like infrastructure, like that's big P right? Like that's big P you have yeah. the resources I'm paying my tax. We're all three of us are paying a huge chunk of our taxes on shit. We don't believe in mm -hmm. like, I don't mind paying my taxes. Just, you know, shift where the damn money's going. Like mm -hmm. it's there. Like, well, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> That, that was actually the next question I wanted to ask you, Alex. Like, how how has your personal politics influenced the way you look at this issue? I mean, I'm a socialist. <laughs> um, but I'm also I, mean, I, I almost feel like it's a it's a it's a it's a term that nobody uses, but I feel like I'm a fiscally responsible socialist. Um, <laughs> because if you if you actually look at it, if you like actually start like breaking down the numbers and the costs, like it costs less. Well, I mean, I, I think you you uh, just to bring it back to homelessness, right? Like it would be a lot easier for us to just house a person than to incarcerate them part of the time and then provide services the other part of the time and then also clean up any potential damages or any, you know, all of the above is really expensive. And we have numbers for this, right? right. Oh, I yeah. Learned. I mean, that's what Housing for Health was born out of the fact that, like, the average emergency room user that's homeless is, like, puts a drain of, like, $100,000 a year on the system. Right. But you give that's them an apartment, all the wraparounds, you're looking at less than $26,000 a year. And then they maybe visit the emergency room once. Right. And boom, you just saved 50 grand. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, then you multiply that by like, you know, 20,000, right. 67,000 right. people. Right. Boom. Yeah. I mean, that, that was exactly the, the number that I uh, looked up today in preparing for this podcast that the average cost is between a hundred, dollars $150,000 a year because we don't have, you know, universal health care. And so because we have a lack of, you know, uh, just access in general to mental health, to physical health. And the fact that we don't, our, our housing is not yet viewed as a right and is linked to um, income, which is kind of has roots to like the history of who, who is allowed to have property and who is not like the, it, it's, there's a, there's a thread that connects uh, the laws that govern property ownership at the formation of this country to today and, and just how we view who is eligible, who's worthy of having a house and, and who is not. And that's because it's still tied to earning as opposed to just being seen as a basic human, right? All right. Yeah. This has been, this has been meaty. Yeah. It's been good. Yeah. I learned a lot. Really? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, anytime. This is fun. I missed you guys. <laughs> yeah. I miss you too, Alex. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, we never we never got to throw you a, a goodbye party, so we're gonna have to come out there and and uh 
and throw you a housewarming party, I guess, instead. Oh it's been 80, 80 degrees like every day wow. this week. It is like the flowers are blooming. It is freaking gorgeous. It is freaking gorgeous. Right on. Place. Well, I got a cherry tree across the street from my house. It's got flowers all, all blossoming. Yeah, it's crazy. Portland's going to be the new um, Southern California in the next 20 years, probably. So you're you're well set. And then we're going to turn into like the Phoenix Vegas vibe probably down here. <laughs> Damn, I'm trying to get away from LA. It's just going to migrate out. There's you. no escaping LA. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to modulate climate change enough so that it, Southern California just follows you north. I'll end up in Alaska <laughs> at some point then. Alaska is going to be like Santa Barbara temps in like a couple <laughs> centuries, a couple decades. Well, be nice. There's people be nice. vacationing in uh, in Alaska to see the whales yeah. and the, get mm-hmm. each time. Yeah, the whales aren't making it, man. Sorry, yeah, the capitalism is is gunning for them. <laughs> <laughs> we tried back in the 1800s and switched tactics. Yeah. We'll yeah. make whales in a, in a lab somewhere. <laughs> Elon Musk will make them. <laughs> that this was a uh, one of the best um official in- interviews that we could have done uh coming out of our our hiatus but also um after having spoken with Andre um a while back it's fantastic to have someone who has had such a breadth of experience like Rob said because Alex really does uh know what it's like to talk the talk and also walk the walk here that's right and um, obviously, we all had some very strong opinions on this side. And, yes, you did. know, it's an ongoing uh, conversation for all of us, really. Yeah. And I think that's one of the cool, cool things that we get to explore different angles and different perspectives and um, let ideas come to the come to the debate table and see, you know, what has merit and what doesn't. And mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, I just hope that the listeners get a more I hope this interview provided a more nuanced understanding because it's such a complex issue and there's no silver bullet and also i hope that that they were able i hope i hope alex was able to shed light in a way that just a lot of the mainstream media fails to do when they report on this problem yeah absolutely and and you know we could go on all day and i know that there are a lot of other perspectives on homelessness especially in los angeles because it's so connected to um, a lot the, of other problems. A lot of other problems in the history of the community, etc. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to, to visit this again. So Definitely. hopefully you'll be there to, to hear some more on on this uh, on this issue and the broader spectrum of problems that that we're facing in in Los Angeles and the rest of the the, the country. Definitely. So thank you for listening, and uh, you can reach us at what is our email? <laughs> United uh, for people's uh, uh, people's house for United number. left yeah at, at gmail. gmail that's right so we'd love to hear from you and uh, yeah uh, 
We'll see you next time. See you next month. What's in my head?